This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot BioProven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. Farmers know how to raise crops and livestock, but the way they farm is increasingly being impacted by the wishes of retailers and consumers. So how is the end user impacting the way farmers will do their job? Is it a challenge to be feared or an opportunity that will allow many to flourish? It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, and it's brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. In 2020, I had the chance to use a new corn nitrogen product firsthand in my fields, Pivot Bio Proven. Pivot Bio Proven adheres to the root of the corn plant, creating a mutually beneficial nitrogen-generating partnership to stay strong all the way through harvest. It's the weather-resistant and sustainable way to achieve more predictable, more productive yields than ever before. Our 2021 trial is well underway, and I'll continue to report our findings throughout the season. We're specifically looking at how Pivot Bio Proven can help supply corn with the nitrogen it needs throughout the season, and that hopefully means the use of less synthetic nitrogen in the future, saving us money while still supplying the corn the nutrients it needs. Pivot Bio Proven may change the way you think about nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Liam Brody is president of Sustainable Harvest Specialty Coffee Importers. You may say, what does a coffee importer know about mainstream U.S. agriculture? Well, in this case, quite a bit. Liam grew up in the ag industry and works with major global corporations that have a major stake in food and agriculture. He's someone who is very in touch with the demands of those corporations and consumers as a whole. Some of the topics we discuss can be controversial, but Liam's role is not to debate, but rather share what he sees in the global marketplace and how that will impact U.S. agriculture. We do spend a few minutes discussing coffee and some trends that may surprise you, but then move into the broader ag landscape. We had a chance to do this interview outside and enjoy the nice summer weather. It's great to get outdoors, of course, but you occasionally get some outdoor sounds, such as the annoying gull that you will hear squawking some at the beginning of this interview, and then a very fun visitor at the end when the local ice cream truck pulled up to solicit customers. I simply began by asking Liam to tell me who and what is Sustainable Harvest. Sustainable Harvest is uh, is a coffee importing company. We're a family-owned business. We've been around for about 25 years, and Sustainable Harvest works with tens of thousands of farm families around the world to be able to find and identify really delicious coffee for global brands, brands in the United States, in Canada, in Europe, uh, you know, anywhere around the world. Brands that that you've heard of, um, national, multinational brands like Carrick Dr Pepper. Uh, and then small local uh, brands as well. So we're uh, we really exist for the farmers, not necessarily um, for the uh, for the sense of profit in ourselves. We were started as a mission oriented company to really change how the coffee trade was was being done. We're going to take this conversation and really apply it to agriculture way beyond coffee. Certainly, you know coffee, but you know a lot of these brands and you know agriculture beyond coffee, certainly. But let's start there. In the coffee world, what goes on with a lot of farmers where coffee is grown and why is a group or a company like Sustainable Harvest really important in importing coffee? So for for folks that don't know, 
Coffee is mostly grown in the tropics around the world. It's grown in, in places like Central America or South America, the famous Juan Valdez in Colombia. It's grown in East Africa. Originally, coffee comes from Ethiopia. And so the places that coffee's grown, for the most part, all in this tropical belt around the world, share a lot of common characteristics. Some of that's just the agricultural characteristics of altitude and volcanic soils. But some of that is the, is the poverty that's been historic in many of those nations. And so the work of, of sustainable harvest and the, 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 the coffee industry in general is really trying to figure out how do, you, how do you do business in that environment? How do you do business in environments that might be politically changing and, and unstable? How do you do business in environments where farmers may not be getting paid fairly or enough to make ends meet? And what does that mean? And the coffee industry particularly has stepped back and said, if the farmers in our industry, at the core, at the heart of our industry, aren't paid enough, then they can't do business. It, it's not a <laughs> political perspective. It, it, it's not a, um, an ideological perspective. It's simple business. It's simple sort of dollars and cents, right? If your cost of production, what it costs for you to make something, and then what you get paid for it, uh, it you're not getting paid more than it costs to produce it, then you're going to lose money. And the majority of coffee farmers around the world for many years have been losing money to c produce coffee. But the thing is, most of those coffee farmers, they don't have an alternative. The volcanic soils that, that, they, um, that they work tend to be uh, you know, mountainside uh, farms and plots that aren't hospitable to, to other agriculture. And so many of the options that farmers are left with then is to cultivate something else that has high value, often because other agriculture food you know, products don't provide that value. They're forced to decide whether they feed their kids or whether they grow some illicit, you know, substance like coca for cocaine in, in the Andes. If that's, you know, not an option that they that they want, they don't feel morally that that's the, the right thing, choice for their family. And these are not simple choices. This is sort of not do I just keep the lights on. This is do I keep food in my family's, you know, belly. This is, do I stay on my, the land of my fathers and my grandfathers and great-grandfathers? Because that's the other option, to leave, to go find something else somewhere else. And we see that happening, you know, all around the world uh, in, in agriculture. People being forced from rural areas to urban areas. And in the United States, we know that as immigration. We see massive waves of immigration. And there's a direct tie and correlation to agriculture and to coffee. We know that many of the, the families in those caravans are coffee farmers. And why? N not because, yes, they, they dream of the, the freedom and, uh, you know, the, the possibility that we all have as Americans, you know, in this country, but truly because the opportunities at home just aren't there and coffee no longer is sustainable for them to produce and make li livelihood for their family. So sustainable coffee is what we're talking about, but this applies to lots of different agricultural inputs, and now we see not only consumers but American-based companies really thinking about, okay, where do we source these products from way beyond coffee? I mean, this applies to things that we grow here in the U.S. as well. Yeah, I'd like to think that in some ways COVID was a bit of a wake-up call for the world, recognizing for the first time that these supply chains um, – 
they they don't just happen. <laughs> they're they're not magical. Uh, you know, they're affected by the realities of the world. And for the first time, I think a lot of people started saying, well, why can't I get toilet paper? <laughs> what, what's up with that? Where, where does that come from? Why, why can't I find fill in the blank today on my supermarket shelf? And so this issue of sustainability, I think, uh, has not been served well by the name we've provided it. Because I think it made it seem to a lot of people, oh, that's what those people do. Uh, they they purchase organic products. They purchase sustainable products. That's not me. And I think that's so funny. You know, I come from, you know, mainstream agriculture and was in the Future Farmers of America. And I learned all of these concepts in the FFA, concepts of fairness and justice, uh, of getting paid, you know, uh, you know, a, a fair, uh, you know, fair salary for a hard day's work. And that's what you know, farmers do. Farmers work their, their, their tails to the bone, and they deserve to get paid fairly for that. And so in many ways, I think what we haven't realized is that sustainability is truly about sustaining the ability for someone to do that thing. And so if we love rural America, if we love agriculture and family farming in, in America, then we have to figure out how do we sustain that? How do we allow the next generation to see that as a potential profitable business opportunity? And that's where I think consumers play a big role. Consumers say, yeah, that's that, that's the part of the, the world and the country that I want to be a part of, where people are paid fairly where there are still you know, these, these attractive family businesses that are out there. And so I think what we're seeing is a new realization that businesses, companies, brands, they, they realize making these investments are just smart business. It's how they keep products on the shelves. And they've recognized that COVID is just one set of, of shocks that are facing the system, economic shocks, logistic shocks. Uh, but for all the debate about climate, I, I think folks in, in agriculture and farming recognize that we are the canary in the coal mine for climate change. Those of us in farming and agriculture know that climate has been changing. It is real. For, forget the debates about what changes it for a moment. Just recognize the fact that now we no longer have predictability. And so if you don't have price predictability, you don't have harvest predictability, you have a lot of instability. And so I, I think this is really about redesigning the agriculture system to work for farmers at the heart of it. So what does that begin to look like then here in the U.S., whether it is farmers growing food but also consumers consuming food? How has COVID and the events over the last couple of years, and even further back than that, changing the way the food system is going to work going forward? It's a great question. Uh, the, the food system continues to change and evolve, you know, good and bad ways. I think that the concept of sustainability, of making sure that you're growing something, that you're engaged in a business that can continue in perpetuity, that can keep going and going, you know, the way many family farms have gone for, you know, for, for decades, if not hundreds of years in this country. So over, over the last 20 years, I, I think this concept of, has moved from a fringe to something that you only found at natural, organic, crunchy, um, cooperative markets to now something that you find uh, in, in pretty much um, every retail presence um, in the United States. And not just in the U.S., around the world. And you, you see that in different ways. You see that in sustainability labels for consumers, buy fair trade, 
by Rainforest Alliance, by uh, Bird Friendly, these different labels that are out there. But you see that also in the proprietary programs that a lot of uh, businesses, food companies now have, of how they source, what standards they, they use, what are their thresholds for doing business with somebody or not doing business with someone. And a lot of companies deciding, I, I don't want to be a part of bad business. I want to do business the right way. I don't want to violate human rights. <laughs> I don't want to uh, destroy the environment. I, I want this to work, and I want to, to gain financially from it but not at the expense of everything else. And so that has changed not just for the small niche of consumers that felt like that 20, 30 years ago. That's gone much more mainstream. And you've seen the businesses um, meet that demand, but also recognize that it's, it's not just about new opportunity with consumers. It's about supply chain stability. And so these two things are big drivers that are changing the face of agriculture and the, the food and beverage industry as we know it. How do you see that with some of the, the major players out there? How has that affected what they're buying and how they're buying it and then how they're delivering that to consumers? I mean, you don't have to look too much further than, you know, Walmart or Target or even McDonald's these days to recognize how mainstream sustainability thinking has gone in business. All of those three entities that I just mentioned are are doing meaningful, measurable uh, work to source agricultural products sustainably and are making big commitments to do more and more and not roll back. And so their future, as they look at it, is a world in which they're only sourcing sustainable products and they're you know changing the concept of mainstream. And so you know I, I think some people have had debates and, and, and fights about that over the last, you know, decades. I think those debates are coming to an end. If you look at, at the way and the direction that most mainstream companies are headed, the, let's, let's call it the food activist in many ways has won. But I think it's a win for everyone. I think it's ultimately a, a win for the rural community and, and for the agricultural industry that um, that that benefits most when higher pricing and better support longer term relationships are are provided through the through the consumer market for some american farmers i think when they hear you say well it's it's been good for all of us they may say well hold on does that mean i'm going to have to change what i do does that mean we change what we do? Does it mean how we market differently what we already do? What do you feel like will be the changes that the American farmer sees if they want to compete in this this market? I know this isn't always the most popular thing to hear, but the reality is we've lived beyond many of what are called our planetary boundaries. We have boundaries in terms of what the capacity of our planet is to, to tolerate certain things. I, I think about that. I'm a dad of four, right? <laughs> I, I have a capacity to tolerate certain things. And when I've reached my, my tolerance, <laughs> bad things happen on the other side. Well, right now we're finding the same things um, with our world. Our, our world can only sustain a, a certain degradation, a, a certain removal of so much biodiversity, wildlife, nature, trees being cut. It can only sustain so much new chemical um, additives um, before you're seeing tipping points happen. You know, the bleaching of, of, of rivers, the bleaching of, of uh, the dead zones that you're starting to find uh, and have been there for years but growing in the Mississippi, the bleaching of, uh, of coral reefs. That starts to tip this planet into an unsustainable place, a place that 
none of us, regardless of, of how we are raised, how we see the world, uh, those will those will be be factors that are irrelevant in many ways because uh, science has spoken and we have to change as a society how we live and and, and how we do business and I, I believe how we how agriculture plays a role and the most exciting for, thing for me about these challenges living beyond planetary boundaries the biggest one being carbon and, and climate uh, as one of those boundaries is that now we're starting to tip into a new economy where you start to see this not as, what are you making me do? Why are you making me change the way I do um, what I've done forever? Uh, to, I'd like to incentivize you to do this. We're seeing governments around the world begin to incentivize people. We're seeing consumers incentivize people. And we're seeing the companies themselves incentivize. The fact that companies like General Mills are working directly with farmers to be able to to try to learn uh, about how practices could become more regenerative, so we're protecting the soil. Listen, farmers know this, right? You know, we just didn't have the. You know, the, this is an exciting time. Technology is caught up to so many things that farmers have known for a while. You you, you look at, at at technology to disperse. Um, you know, let's let's say uh, any fertilizers. You know, we know that we've over-fertilized the world at this point. But that doesn't mean that having more nitrogen is, doesn't have value. It just means that we have to be very, uh, very smart about how we apply it. And so the technology now that we can apply it using precision is part of what I'm talking about. And so I think there are funny things that we, you know, talk about in, in agriculture or say, you know, actually there are a lot of mainstream farmers in America who have been taking sustainable steps. They just don't call it that. And why? Oh, because it, it, it actually lowered their cost of production or it, it helped them enter a new market or get better pricing. And so we see some of those things like no-till in play. I think what we're going to need to see is a massive evolution. So we start saying, okay, what's the roadmap? What's the ideal look like for me? And how do I keep evolving in that direction? to meet um, the, the needs of, of our time, to live within the planetary boundaries, and I think for agriculture be the superhero. You know, American farmers were the greatest stewards of the land because it was their land. They didn't want to uh, pollute their land. They didn't want to, you know, destroy their community. They wanted to protect it and, and allow it to persevere, and I think that's where we're at right now. We just have to step back, step beyond the politics, step beyond the, the, the craziness of conversation that's out there, if you want to call it that, and start to say, hey, we're a can-do people. We can do this, but we must agree that there's a problem, and we must see the opportunity that's in front of us. You mentioned the companies out there that will be incentivizing some of these things. We already see that. For those companies doing that, hey, we, we like to think that companies want to do the right thing, but they have a bottom line. So how do they make the bottom line work? Is it I'm going to pay the farmer to incentivize these practices, and then that cost gets pushed on down to the consumer? And does that change the way consumers then buy or have to purchase food? How does it affect us on the other end then coming up? I think it's a multitude of ways. So I have a customer that I, that I can't mention the name, but last year during COVID, they're able to, to have, you know, what I think, you know, scientists look like and they compare, uh, you know, have kind of a trial. Uh, you know, I think they use the term counterfactual of how do I know that that thing really influenced that? What if, what if you know... What's the lab experience that, that proves that to me? 
And so many used last year as that lab experiment. And those that had many companies that I work with, they're not buying 100% of, of their coffee you know, through um, the, the way that we worked with them with directly from farmers at sustainable prices. And they were able to look at where they had defaults, where they had supply disruption, where they had quality interruptions, and where they had coffee that never showed up. And interestingly, most of those customers that have told me uh, that they've done these these year-over-year um, -year analysis have found that where they had direct relationships, where they're engaged in sustainable relationships, that supply chain didn't break. That supply chain was the supply chain that delivered. And so now they're able to actually put a dollar on that. They're able to see what the cost was where the supply chain did break and realize, oh, okay, there's a cost to not doing business this way. And so I think that's one piece that the, the that company itself has rationalized why they pay a certain price or do business in a certain way. And so that's great for the farmer. And I think it's great for everybody in the company because it's not about benevolence. It's not about uh, ethics. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's about business dollars and cents. And they figured out how that pencils, you know, pencils out. Now, I'm sure business and ethics, I'm sorry, ethics and morals that, that all, and the values, that all factors in. But they don't have to be the, the driver at the front, the tip of the spear. Now, in other companies, sure, they pass along that price. The same way they pass along the price when commodity prices go up. And after a while, they're going to push that back to the, to the end you know, consumer. And so right now, coffee prices are, are going up significantly like so much uh, else. And I think this is an opportunity where some of those companies will have to reinvest and rethink how they're doing business and will have to buy it differently. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's a reminder that there are no longer kind of ultimate best practices beyond agility. I think agility is the best practice we all have to wrap our hands around, that the new norm is change. And we always have to be agile enough to keep changing. And so we have to have the systems and the mental mindset as, as you know, those working in agriculture say, I wish we could have done it the, the way our grandparents did it. But that reality just doesn't exist anymore. And there may be some things we pull the way our grandparents, you know, did this that are, you know, more enlightened than, than we're doing it today. But we're going to have to evolve and, and think about that. And so the whole face of, you know, we're seeing that the whole face of farming and agriculture is changing as a result. Let's wind up with this. You're around a lot of multinational companies. You certainly have an idea of global food systems, but also know the American food system and American farmer real well. For American farmers, what is it that American farmers need to be thinking about? You've mentioned several times not to view this as a threat but an opportunity, but for it to be an opportunity, what is it that we need to be thinking about now to take advantage of that opportunity? I think for American farmers to step beyond the politics of climate change and see it as the opportunity that it is, is the greatest uh, opportunity of this generation. I think for farmers to recognize that there's an opportunity for them to go first to market for a carbon-free product, carbon-free corn. Have you heard it? No. Will you? I bet. I bet you will. We're, we're, we're hearing a number of our customers ask us, you know, brands, retailers ask us now, what do you have that's deforestation-free? What do you have that's child labor-free? What do you have that's carbon-free? What do you have that's climate-positive? 
those are all commitments that that are that are coming from these businesses. Those are all changes that are coming. So uh, you know, I think for farmers to do what they've always done, which is to be scrappy and to to, to look as far down the road as you can and try to make sure you're doing the, the the right things. Well, now it's recognizing that if you look down that road, you're going to see new standards, regardless of you know who's in Congress or who's in the White House. No, so I think ultimately my wish for American farmers is to step back and say, how's this market changing and how can I take advantage of it? There are huge opportunities. They're massive. They're coming fast. And if you're not prepping now, you're going to miss out because larger, bigger, and better financed organizations and operations are going to take advantage of the market. I'm not sure if you could hear that music from the ice cream truck that pulled up very near where we were doing our interview But if you are curious, we did walk over and get ice cream. In 25 years, I've never had an ice cream truck show up while I was doing an interview. But when it happened, I decided we should take advantage of the situation. Liam provides some interesting thoughts about changes in food and agriculture. Change is a part of life, of course. And while some of that change can be challenging, it does provide an opportunity. I do like how Liam gave some ideas on how farmers can land on the opportunity side of those changes. I appreciate you joining us, either on your local radio station or via the podcast. Remember, you can follow this show on Facebook. Just look for Farming the Countryside. You can provide your interview ideas and comments on the program. And you can also catch more of our content by following American Countryside on Facebook. And be sure to follow our new page, Total Town Makeover, with plenty of ideas on how small towns are making improvements to help businesses, schools, families, and much more in rural America. I'm Andrew McRae. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot BioProven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com.